And I was like, I'm going to be unapologetic, probably because of my American friends, I will say, because I didn't have a community until I spoke to people with MS from America, especially Mylin and Melanin, if you remember, Dana and Dawn, and they taught me so much. And they taught me all the things that America were doing for black people with MS and how they were trying to explore what the links were of MS for black people, because in America, it was also seen to be a white disease. But actually, they changed their tune a lot way before we did. So I turned to the companies over here going, well, if America can do it and people are not even got free healthcare over there and it's like costing them so much money, like I'm sure we can do something. So I looked at the Emma Society specifically and went to Emma Society. How are you going to represent people of colour in with MS better? Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back? by finding our joy. Did you know that in 1932, the Public Health Service, working with the Tuskegee Institute, began a study including black males diagnosed with syphilis? It involved 600 black men 399 with syphilis and 201 without. Researchers did not receive informed consent of any of the patients. It also went on for 39 years and participants never received proper medical treatment. The study only ended in 1972 because an advisory panel concluded that it was ethically unjustified. Many scientists believe that bad feelings made it difficult for them to recruit minorities as participants in clinical studies. There continues to be an underlying element of mistrust, which is highlighted completely during the pandemic now with vaccinations against COVID. How does this relate to MS? Well, according to WebMD, early symptoms of multiple sclerosis may commonly be missed for years. The right diagnosis is made much later than it should be. Researchers found that patients with MS had a higher rate than average than the number of medical appointments with doctors of various specialties for up to five years before they were diagnosed, mostly for neurological symptoms consistent with MS. So there's plenty of missed opportunities there for early diagnosis. The MS Society notes that historically MS was believed to primarily affect white people, particularly those of European descent. Research that's been done recently, however, indicates a higher incidence of MS in Black people than previously thought. People of color with MS also have more aggressive disease progression. Those especially in the African-American or Black community, they have greater disability and different symptoms, including more walking balance and coordination problems, more cognitive and visual issues, more frequent relapses with poorer recovery and faster transition from relapsing remitting to secondary progressive MS and more severe impairment. 
but inadequate access to specialty care, mistrust, as we talked about, of the healthcare system, cultural and religious beliefs are just some of the common factors that affect participation in the healthcare system. But there are also issues of bias on the part of the healthcare system, which impact that diagnosis process, which we've heard from many of our thrivers on this show. Well, Roxy Murray is my guest today. And you might also know her, if you don't know her by Roxy, as the multiple sclerosis fashionista. Roxy takes on the big issues in our society, in our MS community. Healthcare, discrimination, underrepresentation of populations in decision-making. And as a woman of color and a proud member of the LGBTQ family, she wants to make sure that voices are heard. A fellow MS thriver, Roxy is part of the Adams study, a study of MS and genetics. We could probably run up like five, 10 episodes together, and I'm excited to get underway. <laughs> Let's chat it up with Roxy. Hi, hun. Thank you for being here today. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here, and I love your podcast. So thanks for letting me be on it. Oh, thank you so much. And vice versa. Roxy has a podcast. We'll talk about that at the end so you can get all the goods and deets about where to find her. But Roxy, will you start us off with your diagnosis story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My diagnosis story was a bit of a complicated one. Basically, when I was 18 years old, I woke up one day in a house by myself and I had blindness in my right eye completely and double vision in my left eye. And as you can imagine, <laughs> you wake up, you're like, hold on, what's going on? That's and scary. I had a meltdown. Like I was like, oh my, I was so scared. And I'm 18. I'm thinking I'm about to go drinking with my friends, not, I know, not be able to see. And I was rushed to the Western Eye Hospital in London and they'd done some tests. I looked at my optic nerves behind my eyes and stuff. And they went to me while I'm by myself, regardless of 18 being an adult's age. They were like, hi, I think you might have a brain tumor. And I'm like, sorry, what? And they're like, a brain tumor. And I'm like, this is not the morning I expect him to have. And obviously, you know, you're 18 by yourself in the room. No one's around. No family members. Obviously, you have a bit of a cry and a meltdown and they go to you. They went to me. I'm going to send you to St. Mary's Hospital, which is just only up the road from there. And we're going to do some more testing. So I ended up in there for a few days and they done like um, MRIs and they looked at the back of my optic nerve and they said, you have optic neuritis. We'll give you some steroids and bring it back. Great. Steroids worked. They brought back my sight and I was very grateful. But I was dealing with all other things like my body felt off and I felt ill and I wasn't myself and I had really intense headaches. So they decided to give me, you know, the very fun lumbar puncher that we all get, my worst nemesis. And they was like, your spinal fluid is too high in your spinal cord. So they diagnosed me with something called benign intracranial hypertension which means the fluid in my spine raises so fast that it creates pressure on the brain. And then they were like, we don't know what else you have. We're going to do some more testing. So I was going in and out of hospital for like a year, seeing different neurologists. At points, I was in their like study room with students and numerous neurologists. And no one really could understand what was going on with me. But what they did do was give me therapeutic, if you can believe, lumbar punches. Now, we all know there's nothing therapeutic about a lumbar puncher. It is like so painful. So I was getting them like every six weeks consistently for two years. And people were like, what? I was like, no, seriously, like every six weeks. Because I needed them. I was having such intense headaches, but no one really understood why. So they diagnosed me in the end with lupus. 
And obviously, because brown people just don't get MS, according to them. I mean, I'm 34 now, so that was like 16 years ago. So, you know, life does move on from then. But 16 years ago, they were like, hey, even though your mum's white, there's no real consideration that you'd have something like MS. We think you have lupus, benign neurotracheal hypertension, and antiphospholipid syndrome, if you know what that is. No, tell me more. Okay, so antiphospholipid syndrome is basically when someone is prone to blood clots. So they put you on a low dose of warfarin or aspirin to make sure that your blood doesn't clot. It's like a bit more of a scientific definition, but I am terrible at the scientific behind that. <laughs> so for six plus years, maybe eight years, I think. I was just living life thinking I had lupus, benign trachoma hypertension, antiphospholipid syndrome, and was getting these therapeutic lumbar punches and random bits of steroids when needed. I was also put on a lot of antidepressants because naturally I was going through depression because I was trying to start university and I just couldn't even have a consistent day in my life. So I was just, wow. my friends were going off to IB for a party and I was just in bed. It was just not the one. And then... um I was like trying to kind of feel positive for the future. I just could not. They gave me the gabapentins and stuff like that, which are like it's meant to help with the headaches and just my function. It didn't. I ended up in a really bad polypharmacy kind of situation where I was taking too many drugs and no one was considering how they interacted. So mm -hmm. it came to a very dark place in my life where I tried to take all the drugs at the same time because I just couldn't cope. I was just like, I don't want to be here anymore. And I tried to do that. Luckily, super mum, my mum was like, we're not going to have that, babe. We're going to get you to where you need to go and we're going to sort you out. So great to my mum because I love being, I love living. But at that point, I think, I don't know about for you, that MS, which we didn't know I had yet, changes your personality sometimes. And on top of that, especially when your nervous system and your neurons are not connecting to right parts of your body and your function, my cognitive function was taking a downward spiral. But I didn't know that that was the case. I was dealing with depression, which is massive with MS. Depression and MS, like one, one next to fatigue, is one of the biggest kind of symptoms you have. And I was just trying to navigate something I didn't know. But what happened was I kept going on public transport, on trains and stuff. I kept passing out randomly. A few times I was incontinent, incontinence, so I'd wet myself. And I was just, I was just like, I don't understand there's this lupus because I'd met people being brown that have lupus. And to me, they were just like, yeah, they were tired and life's like a bit. But all I'm really using is a mobility aid and I'm kind of getting through it. So that's what I thought my future would be, would be like, oh, you might need to use an age when you get older because these people are like 50 plus telling me this. But for the most part, it's just going to be a few tired days and a bit of navigation, changing, adapting in your daily life, which does work for MS, but it's not the same. And they basically brought me in, done more tests. No, nothing. And then I was at my partner's house. I was working in retail as well as fashion styling, because obviously I was a fashion stylist at the point. I managed to go to university, but I was in my last year. So I was doing fashion styling, doing university, doing a little part-time job for a little bit of pocket money. And I was there and I tried to put my hands up to like put some clothes on the top rail and I couldn't do it. Like literally my hand was not functioning. And because I had told my manager before that, you know, I have lupus and antiphospholipid syndrome, I'm not perfect, but I can cope. She was like, Rox, you look screwed. You look fucked. Pardon my friend. You need to go to a hospital right now. You can't have you working, so go. Lucky for me, I was in Kent and not London. 
I was sent to a whole new hospital that didn't really know my history. So they weren't judging me based on past conceptions of other people. They were like, hey, you've come in, but your face looks a bit... And I was like, what do you mean my face looks a bit? Because I'm like, thinking, my face is like, you look like you've had a stroke. And I was like, what? I was like, oh God, not a stroke too. She was like... It was like a female neurologist, the first female neurologist ever since. She was like, no, I don't think what you're telling me makes sense. You're telling me you'll have lupus antifossil liver syndrome, but that doesn't seem to be right. Like you don't, you're not presenting what you're saying to me doesn't make sense. So if you're okay, because by then I was so traumatized by lumbar punctures. I was like, I'm not, I'm not. I started refusing them. I was like, I don't care. I'll take the pressure. I'll take the consequences. I cannot go through another lumbar puncture. She was like, I know you hate this. But if you can do it, it can get you the answers. So I was like, okay, if you sedate me a little bit, <laughs> right, I will try and do this. So I did it. And they took the spinal fluid out, but they didn't dispose of it this time. They actually sent it off for testing. Yay. And all they right. tested my oliconal band, which is something I didn't even know existed, which no one had done for all those years. And she sent it off. And within weeks, she was like, you have MS. She's like, you do not have what they're telling you you have. She's like, I know it's contradictory, but... And she was like, we're going to do an MRI and stuff like that. She was the first person to do more of a full body MRI. And she caught a lesion on my spinal cord at the top because she went a little bit further down around the shoulders. Now, I now know that brown people present more with spinal lesions before brain lesions. No one, I don't know if the neurologist didn't know that or what was going on, but no one ever checked my spine. They only ever went for my brain. So they went for my brain and so there they were like, well, because we didn't see it in your brain, even they had typical optic neuritis, which is like everyone. <laughs> right. We just thought lupus. So I was like, oh, great. So now this woman's given me a diagnosis, which to me weirdly sounds right from what she's describing, what I should be dealing with and how I would be living my life. But I've gone back to my normal neurologist and went, hey, they said I've got MS. And they went, yeah, I don't agree. <laughs> so then it wow. was a two-year fight from there just no. to get them to take on board the fact that I had MS. I can imagine by that time, I'm like literally 10 years in with no MS treatment, which we both know like getting treatment early is key with MS. So being me, being an Aries, being young, being like, screw this. I went on a journey. I came like, and they were like, you need to take Tysabari. I was like, okay, took Tysabari for two infusions and my skin started burning while I was on an infusion. I kept coming up with like, patches of like you know if you burn yourself on a kettle or something and your skin does yeah. that thing that was all happening to me on these tisabri infusions that i was eventually pushed through after you know asking like hey how we can take the ms on board they were like well let's give you some drugs and more we'll, you know you're a trial and error case great whatever sure. tisabri didn't work hated it came off it mid infusion on my second infusion because it just wasn't working and i went rocks you've been through crap no one's really listening to you. No one really seems to understand what it is. Everyone else in the room around you is either old or white. So you kind of feel like, am I meant to be here? Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. You don't know. But what you do know is between all the drugs they're giving you and stuff, something's not right. And you actually don't know where your baseline of functioning is. Like, who am I without all these drugs? Where is my baseline? How is my actual health? Because these drugs are also creating other side effects. So I don't know what is me. What is potential MS and what is potentially drugs? So I went on a two-year detox of all my drugs. I was like, I just took it on my hands. I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not taking no more drugs. What I'm going to do is get off the drugs because I was losing who I was. And I'm going to try and figure out what MS is. 
and like look at it myself and try to understand myself, but also try to understand how to talk to doctors. Because going in there and being young, afraid, and just being like, help me, wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Because then they were just like, go over there, go over here. And I became inhuman in a sense. I just felt like a number. And it was just more like there was no human connection like me and you will have on this call. Like there's no, I feel like you're understanding me and I'm talking back and I feel like we're connecting. Didn't get any of that. So I went on a self-advocacy journey and I learned a lot. And then I went done yoga. I changed my diet. I lost so much weight because I was a very plus size lady. And I went to a hospital appointment and they were like, we need to let you know that even though we're unsure or sure that you have MS, you need to take a drug. Because the thing about it is, if you feel amazing now, that's not necessarily going to be the case in 20 years. So you need to think mm -hmm. about your future self. I was reluctant because I was like, well, I feel great and I've never felt this good before, you know, but I understood that you were trying to say something to me. So I was like, look, I'll weigh them up. I'll look at them. So they gave me Lemtrada and then they gave me Ocovis as the options. So I was oh, like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. So I looked them both up. Lemtrada, I just couldn't because one of the side effects was like, well, if it goes wrong, you'd be washing your blood. In. And I was like, I don't want to be in a dialysis machine. It freaked me out. I've met someone on one and I just, I hate blood. I just, it's not the one for me. So I went, we'll try Ocovis. And I tried Ocovis just before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened, but then I had to stop after this. So now I've just started it again. And I'm on my actual second full infusion. I'm waiting for it to come up. But it had to be um, delayed because of UTIs, our best friend of MS. And yeah, that's where I am with my thing. So my diagnosis was wild. But obviously, for what we're going to go into, it gave me all the fuel to become this like unapologetic loudmouth of MS. That's like, hey, we've got to change some stuff. Yeah. And it's so like, when I see you, I just think brave, like super courageous. And it's because you have gone through all of this crap to get to this place. And so tell us what are your lingering symptoms right now? Well, right now, because I'm waiting for my infusion. And since the pandemic and having to stop Ocrevus at points, my whole left side is completely numb. So my leg is fully dragged behind me. It doesn't really function correctly. I don't know if you're averse in ballet. There's like a ballet. Yeah. yeah. There's a yeah. thing called good toes, naughty toes that all the kids get to do when you're, so I can, I've done ballet as a kid, but on this side, this foot doesn't function. So I'll be this foot does this and this foot does that. And it doesn't function correctly. Unfortunately for me, because of pandemic physiotherapy, I'm still waiting for it like nearly three years now. It's coming up to because you had the two of the pandemic and now we're trying to push you to get me the physiotherapy. Thank God for the MS guide and um, the MS gym. Sorry, MS guide. MS guide is great as well, but the MS gym and their videos because I've been using them just to try to force myself to walk properly because it swings. I don't know if you've had that. It swings and then it's numb and it gets really hypersensitive. And then at night I'm like this in my leg. Ah, uh, spasms. Horrible spasms. Cognitive function's a bit off sometimes. And then if I speak for too long, my, my words start sounding like <laughs> I've got a lisp, which I don't actually have. But it becomes when you get tired and fatigued and you can't move. And obviously UTIs. UTIs seem to be my best friend right now. But I'm starting to learn medically that can be down to just the drugs I've taken affecting how I function and obviously my bladder and the signals have changed. So I went from urgency to lack of even being able to get it out 
and now I'm back at urgency oh. again. So it just depends on how my drugs are working. <laughs> it's so wild, like how, you know, much it can vary from even day to day and all of that. But you're such a freaking trooper with all of this. I understand how the depression can come on. And I'm really glad that you are able to have that support system to get out of it because there's a lot of people that don't have that and they are not able to, and they look for other medications or alcohol or something to cope. And, you know, we all know that's not healthy. So, all right. Wowza. It's just, it's a long journey. So 16 years ago, basically, we started having issues. So the misdiagnosis piece really gets me. And I think it really ties into the work that you're doing with the Adams Project. So fill us in about what this is and how you became involved with it. Okay, so I became involved with the Adam Sorich and stuff was because of like technically what happened with George Floyd. Really pushed a lot of people to be like, well, what are you going to do for brown people? How are you going to make all these tragedies that we're dealing with not a possibility anymore? Like you're breaking people's hearts. We're having to see all the injustice that we go through, whether that's being murdered by police or the injustice of just a black woman going to a hospital and asking for help and being told it's your mental health or you should be able to deal with this because you should be stronger. Like these weird things that we're getting. And then on top of that, I'm looking at these companies that people are telling me to interact with. And we've got MS, interact with this person or go over here, there's a community over here and I'm going, but these people don't look like these. They don't seem to relate to me. I'm not even finding a younger audience, regardless of colour, which I can connect with at this point. Now we have them, but I think the pandemic and being able to sit at home and see each other has allowed a lot of people to create things like the study, like MS Together, which is an 18 to 30 MS group. Um, and I was like, I'm going to be unapologetic, probably because of my American friends, I will say, because I didn't have a community until I spoke to people with MS from America, especially Mylin and Melanin, if you remember... Dana and Dawn, love them. Yeah. I spoke yes. to them and a lovely girl called Kiana, who does a lot of body positivity. She's got her own podcast. She's like an amazing photographer. Like you'd love her. She's incredible. And we'd speak about MS and sex and just injustice. And they taught me so much. And they taught me all the things that America were doing for black people with MS and how they were trying to explore what the links were of MS for black people. Because in America, it was also seen to be a white disease. But actually, they changed their tune a lot way before we did. So I turned to the companies over here going, well, if America can do it and people are not even got free healthcare over there and it's like costing them so much money, like, I'm sure we can do something. Can we not look at their, like their data? Can we not have conversations cross? We're not allowed to do that. Okay. I get it. Maybe we're not allowed to do that, but how about we do it ourselves? So I looked at the Emma Society specifically and went to Emma Society. How are you going to represent? people of colour in with MS better. And you know what? I give them all props. They didn't go to me, shh, be quiet. They went, you know what? We don't know. But if you're happy to talk with us and you're happy to conversate and help us through, we will do everything we can to make this better because they do want to make it better. And that's how it started. I started talking to a lovely lady called Babs and another one called Antonia. And I started on the Ethnic Diversity Initiative which is basically how they're going to treat people going forth, how they're going to portray MS overall, 
and how they're going to give everyone visibility. Doesn't matter if you're black, Indian, Mexican, white, gay, trans, like, no matter, like, you deserve space to be seen because it helps everyone. If you're sitting at home with MS and all you can see is, I don't know, Grant, who's 68 from Manchester, but you're Doris, who's like 30, I don't know why someone could be fighting with Doris, but we'll go with it. 30 in a whole other place you might not be able to connect so the more visibility of everyone the more we feel like a community more we can come together and discuss things so i was like you need to do better you don't even show off on your website because i realized the ms society or the national ms society in america if you go on their instagram not only is it really diverse but they tag everyone they do really cool adverts like they make everything kind of hip and new like we do with podcasting, we try to keep people engaged in a way that's enjoyable, but informative. I don't think they were doing that. And I definitely don't think they were doing that for people of colour. So I decided I was going to help. The next step from doing the EDI was like, well, hey, you're very passionate about this. There's a study that's coming up where we want to actually get the data because we haven't got the data. There's so many reasons which you can go into of MS in people of colour. Would you be happy to take part in the steering group, which is how it will go forth so that how we connect with people? Because they don't know how to connect with people of colour. They don't know how to connect with younger people. And that's not just the MSI, that's all of them. That includes the NHS and the medical, the big pharma, all of it. They don't understand the words. They wouldn't go on TikTok to do a, a 60 second TikTok to engage. And they go, well, we can't connect with these people. These people won't onboard them to a study. But you've made no effort to go to the places that they are, to speak about things that matter in spaces these people are. You expect them to come out of their space into yours, but you've no, made no effort to show them that you care or that you're trying to connect with them. Especially, like you said, with the Tuskegee Project and all the things that have happened previously, where people have got a lot of trauma. And on top of that, everyone's a bit like, oh, I don't ever want to do that. Because last time we took part in anything, look how it went. I mean, you know, first bit and twice shy. You know, you don't go, you don't go back into it. Yeah. So you need to prove that actually you guys have changed, that you're doing it for the good of us, not for your weird, sick scientific experiments that you just want to do. And, you know, listen to us and have us engaged in it, but not just in the place where we are just the subject, but also with the people building how it is built overall. So that's when I was like, I'm there. Let me know. I'm happy because you can't using like overly medical terms. I'm sure you're, you know yourself, all that medical jargon makes people switch off. We've got cognitive issues. We have MS. Even the word right? multiple sclerosis, some people feel like is like a, a piss take because it's like you can't even say it when you're having the worst MS. You can't get that word out of your mouth. So when you're there talking yes. about all these medical terms, like rah, 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 people that like, have no fucking clue what they're talking about. So I'm like, had to verse mm-hmm. myself in understanding those terms, those terminologies, so that like you, we can go back to our audiences and our community and be like, well, this is what they're saying in layman's terms so you can understand and maybe want to take part in something. You're not, there's no transparency. You need to be transparent in what you're doing. I'm trying to teach them that i'm trying to teach them that in america they have patient advocates and patient experts Mm -hmm. and they're very important because there's a difference between 
a medical neurologist is 30 years saying something to someone else like me of my colour with MS or them allowing me to say it to the person with colour of MS because I have MS. So we'll connect differently because we deal with the same thing versus someone that comes in and goes, well, I heard you from MS and you're like, yeah, but do you really understand? I mean, it's debatable. I know you care, but do you understand? Whereas if I go to someone else with MS and I have MS, instantly they go, you get it. And that's important, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. when connecting the thing. So the Adam study became that thing for me. So far, we've had 300 people on board, which is a good start, but we've only just started. We've done a few talks with medical places to get better visibility. And we kind of are trying to just push the need to create a better healthcare system for all, but especially people of colour, so that we have drugs that actually take us into consideration and our genes into consideration. Because... The thing about it is, I've spoken about this before on the Society. I wrote a blog and there was a lot of blacklash on Facebook. I don't do Facebook personally because I just think it's toxic. But it's very much like, well, you think, you know, you're special and how does your MS mean more than my MS because I'm a white woman? And, and I was like, that is not what I'm saying at all. First of all, I'm black. That's what my dad's black. I don't look white, but my mom is white. Right. So, I think I would come from a unique perspective as someone that is mixed of race. So my intention is never to be like, screw white people. No, that's not it. Like, it's like, no, but you need to understand, I have the genes of white people in me, but white people do not have the genes of us in them. So if you can understand that actually testing our genetics actually helps everyone, it's not like about them and us, it's about us together. That's all I care about. Like, I'm not doing this just because. Yeah, we need better healthcare for black people, but we need healthcare for all of us. And if it takes being part of something to create that for everyone, I'm always going to be happy to do it. And if I have to be the first person to onboard into something so I can show people that there is no fear or I can be the person that goes, this is what I'm actually doing so that people can, you know, feel safe when they take on something because we have an illness. We've already been pricked and prodded and pulled back and forth like to ask those people going through stuff already no matter where you're from or what color background you have is a lot so if i have to be that person that goes hey guys i'm going to do it for the good of everyone and if i can show you what's happening and then you feel safe or you want to join come and join but someone's got to take the first steps right and i just made it me Yes. And you are collecting others that feel the same way. And when more people get on board and we can share this information with others, then more things will come to light. And those people that are the naysayers in those situations that you just described, I feel bad for them because there's some level of fear there. That's how I kind of think about it. There's some level of fear there that might take the attention away from them or make it about a different topic rather than the MS. They're just fearful and unknowing of what's really out there and lacking experience with people. Because more and more often, I'm just hearing very similar stories, especially from my people of color that I've been talking to. And the length of the diagnosis, the I'm not listening to you. Like even Jay was talking about how she felt like they thought she was drug seeking. And that's why she kept coming back to the doctor. 
Well, I certainly didn't experience that. And I checked myself into the hospital and said, fix me. I certainly didn't experience that. And as a white woman, I don't face a lot of the things that you do. And in the history of the planet, in what people of color have experienced, there is this thing in the back of your mind, like, are they going to judge me? Or am I going to get heard? And all of this. So we need to be cognizant as a society about these things. And I think there's change evolving. And you are a big part of that, Roxy. And I just really appreciate you sharing your story with all of us so that we can then go out and share with others and ask questions. Because being silent isn't helping anyone. If I don't understand, and I told you in our pre-conference, like I don't know. And I have to ask questions and it might be uncomfortable, but we're both going to leave the conversation knowing a little bit more about a topic or each other or even having more questions to ask. And that is in a healthy space that's going to benefit everyone. I love that. So I think that you're spectacular and (laughs) that's the bottom line. So (laughs) yes, yes. So If you don't know about the Adams Project or study, the Adams study, we're going to have all that information in the show notes for people because I think it's important. Now, is it just for people in the UK or can anyone participate? It's just Europe. Yeah, it's Europe because America have already kind of done it. I've already had loads of MSs be like, can we take part? And I was like, I wish. They would want to, but they're not allowed to do it. So now we're just in the UK and Europe. So they can take part, but mainly the UK is where we're based because that's there's a lot of hospitals that are now onboarded. So there'll be a lot of people that in the next few months will be asked when they're in their infusion, hey, have you heard about the study called Adam's study? Would you like to take part? It literally is just spitting in a tube. That's all it is. It's not even like, I actually have, I don't know if it's a visual or not, but I'll show it to you. It's like, this little tube. Oh, easy squeezy. Okay. Yeah. Little DNA tube. You spit in it, you close it up, you send it off. That's it. It's no, like, it's no blood test and pokes and none of that. It's just simply that. And your data is protected because that's been my number one thing the whole time. Like, I literally had everyone's back. I'm like, what about our data? Data is expensive. Data was very lucrative for people. We know about data and data harvesting and stuff. And I was like, is our data going to be safe? Ours, is it going to be anonymous? But do, what do we get back? What data do we get back? Now, the thing about Adam's study is, and most medical studies, if a lot of people know, that a lot of things take 10 years to create any change. So a lot of people are like, oh, if I do it, do I, what do I get? And I'm like, it's not really going to benefit you as a person to partake in, in the sense, but it will benefit the people that come up behind you. Now, we all know MS and genetics is, yeah, genetics of being of colour or wherever you come from, but it's also genetics of you know, family members. So regardless of if you're white, Indian, black, Arab, there is a risk of family members, children, people in your family network of also having MS, whether they know or not. So I see it as I'm doing it so that, you know, my siblings, anyone that comes up behind me in my family network or anyone else, any other brown person, any other white person that comes up behind us doesn't have to deal with all the crap that we dealt with about MS. Doesn't have to have those 10 year delays to get a diagnosis. We do all the hard work as much as it's tiring sometimes. And trust me, I'm tired sometimes. 
I know it's worthwhile if one person walks in tomorrow, presents a symptom and gets quick and prompt care. Like that to me is worth it. And that's all I do it for. It comes across to a lot of people as a colour thing, but that's because I'm representing who I am, which is a brown queer femme. But it's not just about that. It's about everyone. And that's why I do it, because I care about everyone. Because like I've sat there and cried and talked and screamed with all my friends and we come from all different parts of the universe. But we understand each other because we all care about the overall goal, which is cure MS. (laughs) Yes. And the more we know about all of each other, I don't know how that couldn't benefit everyone. And so, yeah, we need to like make a difference here. And whether it's 10 years from now or even 20, I mean, imagine I talked to a lot of people like you 16 years ago, we knew so much less about MS. So this is just one more piece of our puzzle to find that cure, discover why we are getting this and move on and be healthy living people experiencing life because that's all we all want. So I don't know if it's a passion of mine necessarily, but I think that it's just such important work. And I want to make sure that we get the message out there in a positive way, because that's a lot of misinterpretation on the part of a lot of people that don't understand and are not seeking the answers. So I know that there's a lot more to you than this one piece in in your daily life. And I know that gratitude is a really big deal to you and how you live into that value impacts the way that you perceive others, perceive yourself. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you use gratitude to just enhance your life? Well, firstly, I had to learn gratitude on this journey. I was not a grateful person before Emma. And I went through a lot. I um, learned gratitude from my partner. I, like I said to you, I went through a really turbulent time with MS. And I, after all the whole suicide situation, even years into moving to my new home, I was like all over the place. I didn't know what's going on. I had to stop doing fashion styling because I couldn't do 12, 14 hour days. And I love fashion. I know you know, but I love fashion. It's my art. It's the thing that keeps me waking up in the morning. Do you know what I mean? And I was losing all that because I couldn't do, I was going to jobs and I had to go home. I couldn't even get through the day and it was emotional and stuff. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I ended up just sitting in bed for like days. I couldn't get out. And they think they could see that I was falling apart and they were like, you need to change something. And that's where things like metaphysics and stuff came in my life. And the thing about a lot of people, not a lot of people like spirituality, quite speak and metaphysics. A lot of people are like, oh, not for me. And especially when it comes to health, but for me, it really did allow me to reset my mind and to look at things outside of the box. The first book I read was Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now. And it wasn't about going, oh, if I read this book, it's going to cure my MS. It's not going to cure my MS. But what it did was it cured that monkey chatter in my mind, that constant panic that I was in. MS put me in. And that's where I started to understand what gratitude was. Because I had to be like, they were like, well, what are you grateful for? Are you grateful? And I had to be like, well, actually, I'm grateful for waking up this morning. I'm grateful for deep breaths. I'm grateful for yoga practices. I'm grateful to be able to have conversations with you like I'm having right now. And I didn't realize that gratitude could be as simply as I'm grateful to be able to walk three steps today. Because you need to see the big picture. I think we live in this first world country. So everything's quick. Starbucks quick. We, we can become ungrateful. 
we kind of become a bit bratty. And a lot of people don't want to admit it, but we do. And that's okay when you have an illness. But sometimes you have to take a step back and be like, see, smell the roses, see the world around you and be like, I'm grateful for this community. I'm grateful for being able to share my voice. I don't work. I don't have a job. I haven't had a job since I done fashion styling. So all of this I do in my spare time. Because if not, I'd probably go insane sitting at home doing nothing. That's why I started my podcast. And I needed something to be grateful for and something to just, you know, to feel like I had some self-worth because I am a naturally, I was like quick, fast, pace, love doing things, fashion show, great, magazine, this. I love that life, but I realized I couldn't do it. But I had to be like, well, you you should be grateful that you have the ability to go on the podcast and talk about that. And you should be grateful that you can, you know, you might not be able to do a runway show, but you can take a picture of yourself. So that's how I started doing more fashion on myself. It's not like I didn't dress up, but it, I never really put all the intention into me, which for me, I'm actually kind of almost grateful in that sense. And it's weird. The one thing no one likes to hear, um, except one of my other MS friends, is I'm grateful for MS sometimes. And it sounds wild to most people to go, how can you be grateful for MS? I'm grateful for MS on the basis that I was living terribly when i mean like what you're doing drinking smoking thinking you're great eating crap like all the time i was like a size 24 like it was just you know and it was like a quick sharp like punch to the gut by the universe being like hi hon um, i know that you've loved life but maybe you should love yourself a little bit more than you love everyone else in life and i kind of didn't know how to be grateful for that and i learned actually it's not amazing ms and if I could not live with it, I'd rather not live with it. <laughs> but instead of seeing it as a curse, I can see it from the flip side, which is actually maybe it's a message wrapped in some crap going to, you know, you've got to look at yourself and you've got to take a level of responsibility in how you're treating yourself. And I was grateful for that message. So my gratitude comes from everywhere now. It comes from being able to eat good food. And be able to afford to eat that good food. Because, you know, nothing's guaranteed in there. No, no, it's not. And it is miraculous that you've had the history that you've had. And to be able to say, I'm grateful for MS. It's it's mind-blowing, I'm sure, to a lot of the people listening. Because when you're in it so badly and your leg is dragging behind you and you can't lift it up, but you could take three steps today. It's a big freaking deal. And it's important to recognize those little things because once you start to recognize those little things, like you said, they add up and we can see a little bit, a glimpse of something great. And we have to go back and reflect every day on what those things are. So I start my day with intention, Roxy. And I say, I want to accomplish these three things today. And if I accomplish these three things today, I'm going to feel good. And if I didn't, I need to make sure that I do it tomorrow. But I don't make them unattainable things. Like today, I just want to get home safe today because there's going to be a storm. Okay. And that's a little thing, but it makes me more conscious when I'm driving that it's not about getting home 
in a quick way. It's getting home safely because where I live, it's very populated and the traffic is insane. So at night, I reflect on those three things. And one of the things I always say, regardless if it's one of my morning things, is thank you for getting me home safe. I am so grateful for that because at the end of the day, you know, it's your life. And that's one thing that I sometimes can't control. And I'm traveling safe, but you can't control the other people in your life either. Yeah, You can't control the naysayers that don't want to hear that we're doing a study for brown people. We can't control those things. So the things I can control are the things that I intend to do and the things that I'm grateful for. And so I love that you're saying that it was a journey for you because it's not an automatic thing. You're not just going to wake up more in the morning and feel grateful. Because the truth is, life is work. It's very freaking hard. And regardless of if you have MS or you have something else. But, you know, in this place, what I heard you say earlier is that you have found a great community of support. And I'm a little prideful that you found some Americans that you love. But... <laughs> I have found some people across the pond that I also love and people in Ireland. And I got a shout out to these people because a lot of people in Denmark listen to my show. And so if you are a person of color living in Europe, living in Denmark specifically, because I'm shouting you out, please reach out to Roxy because she has a plethora of information and you participating in a study like the Adams project is going to help us all. So please, please consider reaching out to her. And we're going to, again, link all of that information in the show notes for everyone so that they can access it. So I do want you to talk to me a little bit about you know, you mentioned the fashionista piece, and that's a big part of your persona on social media. And that outlet for you means a lot. And you also accessorize in a very particular way. Can you share with us your thoughts about that? Okay, so fashion is like my everything. I love fashion. It brings me so much joy and art. It's like the two things that I just couldn't give up regardless of MS. It could take everything it wants, but it cannot take those things away from me. So I had to reevaluate fashion and be like, well, now you're more tired. How do you stay cool and cute needing like fashion that's easy to put together, but also mobility aids because I've had to adapt in how I get around Sometimes I'll try and walk without them, but then I do it and I go, oh God, why did I even try that? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to figure out, like, how do I still feel like me, but use all these different mobility aids? And so I started finding some amazing mobility aids. The first one I came across was the Alinka walking bike, which is a Canadian-based made walking bike. And it's bright yellow, which is like the best because... I'm unapologetic, I'm queer, I'm loud, I'm here, listen to me, that kind of thing. And it's great because it's like not the boring NHS medical stuff you get that's like grey or yeah. weird blues. And it's like when I used to use those things, the conversations people would come up and speak to me about was so like, what happened to you then? And you'd be like, what? What? <laughs> And now changing those mobility aids to the Alinka walking bike or an amazing creation by a lady called Lindsay called the Neo walking stick, which is walking sticks of bright colors like you can get. I don't even have enough to be honest. I need to buy more, but like I said, it works. So you've got to be, you got to be frugal sometimes. Um, 
And they're brilliant. You can get them in any color you want. You customize them. You can get them with like question mark handles, square handles. The best one that I don't own yet, which, you know, I need to own is the light up one where you can literally light up the stick. So if you're a raver and you want to go clubbing, but you want to look amazing, you can get a walking stick that's see-through that will light up in different colors. And also if you're just like in a weird place or you live in a village and you're walking down the street at night and you just want people to be able to see you about wearing a high vis it's also good for that but it is incredibly fashionable and I just match my outfits to do things now so that people come up to me instead of being like what's going with what's wrong with you are you all right you're a bit young for Emma's aren't you that kind of stuff people are like oh my god what is that you've got that's really cool and even people that are not disabled kind of want my near walking sticks now yeah. do you know what I mean and people that see me on the Alinka walking bike are like regardless if you've got an illness it's good for people of any age. There's kids with them. She's made tiny ones for kids to use and stuff. And they are so cool and so brightly colored that it just makes you feel so much more empowered using mobility aids like that, that feel like they reflect your personality. And they're not just something that you have to use. I love people like in wheelchairs that I have friends with that like will get like the coolest wheel attachments and they'll put like a little bit of fur in it and they just like make it their own, which I think you should do with your style and your mobility aids. Because to me, they're an extension of my style. It's like my shoes, right? Yeah. Like they're going with me. I don't want to be boring. Life's boring enough. Like how about we just make it way cooler? And I think, you know, disabled people deserve better visibility and aids are great for that and it does like i said change the conversation people have with you based on the aids that you're using a hundred percent and that walking bike is so dope i look at it and i'm like i want to use it even though i don't need it currently but it looks so you And I'm really glad you had access to getting something like that. And I see you with your clear stick all the time. And it's just fun. It makes it a little more light. And it's a weird analogy, but I think about Steven Tyler and how he decorated his mic stand. It's him. He made that him. And every time you see that mic stand with all the scarves on it, it's going to be him. So when I see a bike like that, you come to my mind. And like you said, it makes it unique. It makes it a little bit empowering for you when you leave the house because people do ask questions. (laughs) They have balls, these people, I tell you. They ask questions and I don't know if I want to answer you sometimes. So I had a stretch mark on my shoulder when I went to my brother's, well, my sister-in-law's wedding shower. And I was wearing a sleeveless dress and my cousin, who's much younger than me, she goes, what is that? And I said, oh, honey, that's a stretch mark. You'll never have those because she's like a size zero. And my aunt goes, oh, no, you need to tell people that you were sword fighting. And that's how you got that, that I got it from sword fighting or dueling with someone. And it just makes it a little bit more fun of a conversation. Like people will know that that's a stretch mark, but in the end of the day, why does it have to be? This is me here. And that is a life mark that shows the history of my life. And it's about perspective too. I can look at it this way or I can maybe had a little sunshine into it. And that's what I've heard from you this whole conversation. I mean, we talked about the fact of misdiagnosis 
and depression, cognitive issues, being unapologetic for all of these things that have gone on when you're trying to advocate for yourself. The Ethnic Diversity Initiative, metaphysics, which now I have lots of questions about, resetting your mind, developing that self-worth, which is so important, which you've really done through your fashion, which you've really done through your advocacy work, putting intention into yourself, which I love that. I feel that every day. If I don't have purpose in the Attention. I don't feel like it's worth it. And seeing MS as a message, a message to clearly know who you are and what you represent on this planet. And for all of the white people and the people of <laughs> color, I so thank you for being here today. Please tell us where we can find you so we can reach out. Okay, so my biggest platform, my best platform, I think my best work on is probably my Instagram, which is the multiple sclerosis fashionista. On Twitter, I'm Roxy MS Advocate because you cannot put a word that long on there. And then obviously on TikTok, you can just put Roxy Murray in. Oh yeah, and I have a podcast obviously called The Sick and Sickening Podcast, which is basically me. I'm sick, but I try to say sickening and say fashionable. Uh, yeah, and I'm on YouTube as well under the Thick and Thickening podcast, or you can just put Roxy Murray or the Marvel Scrolls Fashionista. I'll come up in any of those things. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's me. <laughs> that's great. And her podcast is released about once a month. Sometimes there's two. Do you have great guests on there? Yeah. Right now we're talking about sex and disability. So if you're into sexual empowerment with a disability, that's literally what I'm doing now. It's my sexability series. Yeah, that sounds good. I need some help in that department. I'm sure a lot of us do. And whether we're having issues from our MS or not. So I'm sure it's very entertaining. I listened to this most recent one that you put out there and I was like, wow, that is great because this is the thing about you. You are unapologetic and you're just going to put it all out there. Let's talk about it. So we'll have to have you back on Roxy to fill us in with that series and all of the things that have come out of it <laughs> so that I can learn a little bit more too. And we'll get down <laughs> to that nitty gritty about, you know, sex. And that's a little bit more fun <laughs> to talk about. Self-empowerment. So. <laughs> yes, all of that stuff. So my face hurts from smiling so much over the last six minutes or so. So again, thanks for being here and please keep thriving. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I always will keep thriving. You too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you'll find links to all our social media, my blog, and lots more. See you next time when we chat it up with another autoimmune warrior on the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. Keep thriving. Keep thriving.